So if you're concerned, is this going to be a habit, uh, 14 passages of Scripture in a single message? No. I'm, I'm pretty sure this is the last time. Um, but uh, but this, this message is an important one in, in my mind. I actually was going to try and squeeze it in last week, so imagine how long um, last week's message would have been. So um, we have been in a, a series of talks um, called Declarations, the idea that, that our church has something to say, that the that the Christian faith has something to say to the world. And we're looking at what it is Christianity has to say to the world. We we began a couple of weeks ago looking at truth. And we said, like like every philosophy, like every religion, we believe we know something um, that's not just, not just uh, true in our heads, it's not just kind of an interesting idea we thought of, but that it relates to the world around us. We, we said Christianity has something to say to, to uh, the world about the world, about people, and especially about God. And we said that the way we know that is that, is that while we have been cut off from God, we've become disconnected from God, we can't observe anything directly about God. God has bridged the gap. God has come to us and God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ that we can learn things about God by looking at Jesus. If we, if we want to know what God is doing, we watch what Jesus does. If we want to know what God says, we listen to what Jesus says. So that was our first talk. We talked about the idea of truth. Now, the second talk last week was about grace. And the idea was there, um, if we've been cut off from God, how do we know what God thinks about us? Uh, you know, we don't really care what God thinks about galaxies and planets and stuff like that because they're not related to us. We're more concerned, what does God have to say to us? And And so we talked about this idea called grace. And the idea of grace is the idea that what God uh, wants more than anything else is to reconnect to us, that God doesn't want to punish us, God doesn't want to get even with us for any kind of offenses we've made, but that God actually wants to bridge that gap. God wants to to reconnect to us. So uh, the idea is um, whatever whatever you, you have heard, whatever your feelings inside you say, um, God doesn't hate you. And the way we know that is because of Jesus Christ. And the specific way we know is what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the cross. Um, and the cross is, uh, is an important doctrine. Um, what does the cross tell us? Well, uh, it's, it's as central a symbol of Christianity as, as there is. For thousands of years, people have used the cross to signify Christianity. I mean, this goes... Way back to the early church, uh, the Apostle Paul, he wrote a big chunk of the New Testament. Uh, he was one of the leaders in the early church. And he said that he hoped that he never boasted in anything except the cross of Christ. For him, the cross of Christ was a summary of everything that Christians had to say about anything, was tied up in the idea of the cross. Paul said that, the, um, that he never hoped to boast in anything except the cross of Christ. But the cross is a troublesome concept. One of the things we've seen over the last uh, couple of generations is that, that because the cross is such a good symbol of Christianity, when people have problems with Christianity, when people have baggage because of the church they grew up in or the church their parents used to attend or whatever it is, when people have baggage with Christianity, they apply it to the cross. And so one of the strategies a lot of churches have used in the past couple of generations is to de-emphasize the cross. They say, well, look, there's a place for the cross 
later on, as people grow in their, their Christian maturity, we'll tell them more about the cross. But we're going to start out just by telling them that God loves them, happy thoughts like that. And, and uh, I'm not criticizing that maybe that's a legitimate way of, of uh, reaching people, reaching the lost. Um, I'm not trying to run down other churches, but you'll notice we have a cross here. That's not the strategy we follow here. But um, a theologian about 50 years ago, he, he looked at the situation in American Christianity. He said, this is a disturbing trend. If we take out everything that people are offended by, then we wind up with really nothing much. And his concern, he said, was that, was that um, uh, the church was presenting a God without sin who brought a people, how does this go? A God without wrath brought people without sin into a kingdom without, without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That the church was watering down its message by taking out everything that people found offensive. And so he said, I'm concerned about a church that doesn't have a cross. So we're going to talk about the cross. And like I said earlier, um, I was trying to somehow wedge everything about the cross into one talk last week, and I couldn't fit, so we're going to try and get to it today. Um, there are there are three images that we see, or families of images that we see in Scripture about the cross. And I'm going to try and present enough so that you can, you can kind of remember uh, some of them. But honestly, it doesn't matter because you've always got your Bible. You can go back and read them there. So, so if, if you don't remember every little uh, doctrine about the cross, that's fine. You still have your Bible. But what I want to do is I want to talk about the cross. What does the cross show us? Uh, the cross, as you know, was the way that people used to get killed by the Romans. Uh, they, they had perfected it. The Romans, the Romans were kind of engineers, so I have a certain affinity to them. Uh, they took, they took the world and they, they improved on everything they came across. They, they had a great military empire. They did a lot of, they did a lot of improvisation and, and, uh, innovation in the area of military arts. Uh, but not just military arts. They built things. They built roads. They built a network of roads all around the empire that was so vast that everybody used to say, all roads lead to Rome. They built aqueducts to bring water 50, 100, 100 miles sometimes uh, from, from up in the hills where it was to the city where they wanted it. They built walls around the city. And some of these things still are standing today. The Romans were great innovators. And one of the ways they innovated is they looked at all the ways you could get rid of your enemies. And they seized on the cross and they said, let's perfect this. See, what they wanted to do is they wanted to take something and, and when somebody caused them trouble, they didn't just want to torture him in some dungeon somewhere, right? They weren't, they weren't interested in torturing people and killing them. What they wanted to do is they wanted to torture them publicly because the Roman idea was this would serve as a lesson to everybody else. If you caused them trouble, if you broke the rules, they would torture you to death and then everybody else would look at you and say, uh, I don't think I'm going to cause any trouble. So that was the Roman attitude toward the cross. That's why they perfected the cross the way they did. And we all know Jesus was executed on a cross. Well, why? Well, certainly Jesus broke a lot of rules. Jesus was always breaking rules. He, he would go into the temple one day, and it would be a Sabbath, and he would heal a dozen people. And people would get upset. You're not supposed to heal on the Sabbath. Jesus was always breaking rules. Jesus would listen to what the religious leaders said, and then he would say something completely different. So, for example, Jesus uh, said one day, he said, You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, 
love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus said, all right, all of the leaders here in the temple, they tell you, do this. And I'm going to tell you something completely different. Don't just love your neighbors. That's obvious. Anybody can do that. He said, love your enemies. Pray for the people who persecute you. Well, you can imagine after a while, the religious leaders are getting pretty tired of hearing Jesus come in all the time and say, I don't pay any attention to them. Listen to me. So, of course, they became more and more furious with Jesus and eventually decided to kill him. We understand that. The question is, why would Rome kill Jesus? I mean, Rome conquered Israel. They had no particular interest in the local religion. And as for as for how they ran things, well, the Roman attitude, and the cross is a great example of this, was let them hate so long as they fear. That was a Roman slogan. Let them hate so long as they fear. And they used things like the cross to make people fear. So if a local rabbi is telling people, pray for your oppressors, you'd think that would be exactly what the Romans would be hoping for, right? It gives them that much less trouble. But not necessarily. See, Jesus said other things too. Jesus said things like this. He said, He said, if any want to become my followers... Let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will gain it. Jesus said, don't worry about the cross. Take it up daily. Or he said this. He said to, when, when they came to arrest him, a, crowd, a mob came, and somebody grabbed a sword and was trying to fight back. And Jesus said this. He said, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. Jesus said that the sword, the weapon that Rome used to maintain its empire, and the cross, the tool that that, that Rome used to terrify the local populace, that these had no power over people who were part of the children of God. Jesus threatened the Roman Empire because he said the empire of the world had no power next to the kingdom of God. So Jesus was not just a threat to the religious authorities. Jesus was a threat to the Roman government as well. So they killed him. Now, the problem with that is that it's not easy to believe, right? Crosses and swords, we understand those. We know how they work. It's very easy to figure out what's going to happen if somebody comes at you with a sword. Jesus is saying something that requires faith. And you either believe it or you don't. And that's been true for 2,000 years. People have listened to the story that Jesus told and said, "Uh, no, I don't think so. People have have disbelieved. People have said, I can't buy it for 2,000 years. And so what the Apostle Paul wrote to describe that, he said, he said, the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Wait, I'm sorry. I marked the wrong spot. He said this. He said, Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom. But we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Paul said, this is not obvious. What Jesus taught is not obvious. A sword is obvious. A cross is obvious. 
what Jesus taught is not obvious. And you either get it or you don't. You either believe it or you don't. Jews don't. They demand signs. Greeks don't. They think it's foolish that your God would come here to earth and be crucified. So he says, some people are just not going to believe it. But for those who are the called, the cross is the, fo- the foolishness of God is the wisdom of, is, is greater than the wisdom of the world. See, it doesn't matter if we believe it because Jesus believed it. Jesus believed that there was more to life than just living. And he modeled it. He went to the cross to show us that the powers of empire, the sword and the cross, have no power over those who belong to the kingdom of God. Jesus went to the cross, and because he did, the early church followed his example. The saints and the martyrs who went behind him, they they believed because they saw Jesus. And so Jesus died first and foremost as a lesson to us. Jesus taught us something we wouldn't have guessed. Jesus died as a lesson to us. Now, for a thousand years, this was by by, by and large the the most popular understanding of what the, the scriptures tell us about Jesus. For a thousand years, this was the most popular understanding. And in fact, in the Eastern Church, it still is. If you go to, to a, a Greek Orthodox Church or something like that, this is still their best understanding of what Jesus did in the cross. But there are problems. Uh, after about a thousand years, it kind of got pushed to one side because so many people came to it with this. They said, okay, all right, I understand. I understand that Jesus is an example. Jesus has taught us new things we wouldn't have guessed. Jesus has taught us not to fear the cross, not to fear the sword, but the problem is I do. Jesus has taught me all kinds of things, and I don't obey them. Jesus has taught me to love my neighbors, and I don't. Not every day. Sometimes I don't love my neighbors. I certainly don't love my enemies. What about me? What can I do if I have failed to live up to what Jesus has taught me? So there's another picture in Scripture that became popular as people began to wrestle with this other question. What if we don't obey? And it's the picture of a sacrifice. We don't do sacrifices anymore. We don't understand sacrifices. Um, when, when we read in John's Gospel, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, and he declared, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, that's church talk, right? Uh, who knows what that is? Nobody does that anymore. Uh, most of us don't even have lambs, and the few people who do have lambs, they don't use them to take away sin. So we cannot relate to this. But at the time John said it, everybody understood what it meant. Not just Jews, but people from the surrounding pagan cultures, they all understood sacrifice. Sacrifice is the idea that somehow you have gotten the God angry at you, your local God, either the Jewish God, the living God, or the the idols that the, that the pagans worshipped. One way or another, people believed that God was upset with them. They had failed to do something that God wanted, or they did something God wanted them not to do. God was upset with them, and they're in trouble. So what can I do? And the answer was, in, in every religion at that time, was to offer a sacrifice. And a sacrifice is, is when you take an animal, a, a, a lamb or a cow or a dove or something like that, and you offer it in place of your, yourself. And, and there's really kind of two theories, and the details don't really matter. But, but essentially, one of them is you're kind of offering it as a gift. It's kind of like you give it to the God, and the God says, oh, for me? 
Oh, you shouldn't have. Oh, it's so sweet. It's a lamb. And you've kind of bought off the God. You've given the God a present and the God says, oh, well, I guess I'm not that angry and lets you off the hook. So that's one theory about sacrifice. The other theory is that, is that you give the God a different target, right? You, you, the God's gonna zap you. And so instead you give the God a lamb. And because the God's not very clever, he, you know, pounds on the lamb instead. So there's two different theories. And again, this doesn't make a lot of sense to us today, but that was the logic of, of a sacrifice. That you're either, you're either winning over the God or you're giving the God at least a different target to, to bring out its wrath on. So, so that's the idea of a sacrifice. And again, every culture in those days knew that. But there are some differences between what Christians believe about sacrifice and what the pagan understanding of sacrifices was. Because you see, if you, if you give a God a sacrifice every time you make a sin, you could be giving a lot of sacrifices, right? Every day, I could be giving the God a bunch of lambs and a couple of sheep, right? Um, because I sin all the time. I, I don't mean to, but that's how we got into this question. If it was just a question of knowing what's right, then Jesus as a moral example. Jesus as a lesson is all I need. The problem is I don't do what I'm supposed to do. So I have to keep offering sacrifices, one after another, after another, after another. But that's under a sacrificial system with animals. But when God gives us a sacrifice, when God gives us the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, then he is the one sacrifice for all. The letter to the Hebrews says this, when, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since then has been waiting until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. The idea here is simply that, that Jesus' sin covers over your, uh, Jesus' sacrifice covers over your sin. The, the sins you committed a month ago, the sins you committed this morning, the sins you haven't even thought of and won't commit for five years. Jesus' sacrifice covers all sins, yours and mine, the whole world. Jesus' sacrifice is once for all, and he's been seated, seated at his Father's right hand now, waiting for the plan of salvation to unfold. So that's one difference. The other difference, or another difference, is this. Different sins require different sacrifices. In the sacrificial system of the ancient world, if I did something minor, just to kind of irritated the God, then I would give them a dove. And if I did something really terrible, then I would give them a cow and a sheep and a lamb and different animals for different, different sorts of sins. But Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the Lamb of God who can take away any sin. People come to their church and they say, you know, you know, pastor, I like what you're telling me, but here's the truth. Okay, if God knew what I had done, if God knew the way I had hurt the people in my life, those sins aren't capable of being forgiven. They're too big. They're too great. And what Scripture tells us is that's not true. Your sins may be great, but the blood of Christ is greater. In, amen. In the letter, the first letter of Peter, he says this, you know you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. He's saying, he's saying, you know, for the very worst sins, if you really, really had the gods angry at you, in a sacrificial system, you would skip the animals. You'd go straight to the money, right? You'd give them silver or gold. And so for the very worst things, you'd give cash. And what 
he's saying is the blood of Christ is better than any sacrifice, animal or money. He says whatever the sin, no matter how bad it is, the worst horrors in human history are covered over by the blood of Christ. So that's another difference, that the sacrifice of Christ is once and it is it is sufficient for any sin. But there's one more thing, and it is this. If I commit a sin, and, and it's a it's a major sin, so I have to pay a sheep. Well, I've got so many sheep. I'm a farmer, I'm a I'm a herdsman, I've got twenty sheep. Okay? So I go pay off my, my debt, I, I I take my sheep to the sac- to the temple, they slaughter it, I'm good with God. Until the next time. And then I take my next sheep and I take that to the temple, they slaughter it, okay, I'm good. Over and over, pretty soon I run out of sheep. The reality is I run out of sheep. Now what do I do now? Well, I can go to my neighbor and say, friend, can you lend me a sheep? I'm in trouble with God. The problem is, what if your neighbors are in the same situation? What if your neighbors are like me? They're the ones who are knocking on your door. Okay, hello, can I borrow a sheep? I'm, a, I'm in trouble with God. The problem is, there's nobody we can borrow the next sheep from. We're all out of sheep. We're all in debt. The writer, uh, Paul, who wrote the letter to the Romans, he said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody's out of sheep. There's nobody you can go to. Everybody owes God big time. What do we do? He says, they are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. I'll get back to that. He did this to show his righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the sins previously forbidden, uh, for, uh, committed. Here's the deal. God can't simply forgive sin. God is not an NFL replacement ref. He can't just ignore what's going on. He can't just wink at you when you go to him and say, I'm really sorry, I didn't mean to... He can't just say, oh, you kids, I know you're always up to your shenanigans. Okay, don't worry about it. I've got it covered. God cannot do that. God cannot do it because it's not fair to you. You've given all those sheep in the past, right? You made those sacrifices, and now he's saying you didn't need to. It's not fair. You'd have a whole flock of sheep if God could just ignore sins. It's not fair to the sheep. It's certainly not fair to the sheep, right? They've been killed all this time, and... And now God's saying, ah, don't worry about it, it's no big deal. It's not fair to the sheep, and it's not fair to anybody else, because the reality is most of our sin, the vast majority of our sin, affects other people. right? Once in a while I commit a sin that's just between me and God, but the vast majority of what I do hurts other people. So God cannot simply wink at us and say, no big deal, don't, ah, don't worry about it, you, you run and play. God cannot do that. God can pass over the sins in his divine forbearance, but only so much. God cannot ignore it. So what does he do? Nobody's got any sheep. We all owe too many sheep as it is. And God can't let you off the hook. So what does he do? The answer is in the middle of this passage. They're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Nobody else could pay the debt, so Jesus paid it for us. Nobody could pay the debt, so Jesus paid for us. This is the second and uh, today I would say it's probably the most popular understanding of what Jesus did in the cross. It's the idea that Jesus died as a substitute for us. Jesus was a sacrifice offered on our behalf. Jesus paid the debt we couldn't pay. So these two pictures for most of, most of the history of the church have been, 
have been the big pictures of the of the of of what it was that Jesus accomplished on the cross. I want very quickly though to show you what the third pic- set of pictures looks like, because because either one of those may help you, but if you add in this third one, then I think you'll get something that will help you, whatever your circumstances are. And it gets its name from something Jesus said once. He said, "For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many." The idea here, for us, a ransom is what you pay a kidnapper. And we don't want anything to do with ransoms. That's If you've got ransoms, you've got trouble. But in the ancient world, a ransom was this. You had a battle with another country, okay? And you lost this battle, and you won the one over there, and now you're sorting everything out. The war's over. You're sorting out the results of the battles. What do you do with the prisoners? In the ancient world, life was cheap. If you caught somebody you know, in a, in a battle, the easiest thing to do would be to kill them, right? And they can't escape, and you don't have to feed them. The easiest thing in the ancient world to do was to kill them. But they developed a different idea, which was ransom. And the idea there is you hold them hostage. And at the end of the war, when you're sorting everything out, you give them back for money, okay? And it pays you for your trouble, all the trouble you've gone to, keeping them alive, keeping them from escaping, you get back in the form of ransom, So Jesus told his disciples that he wasn't trying to be, he didn't come so that people could serve him. He said he came to to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He said, I am going to liberate you from from the powers that hold you captive. In his very first sermon, he preached at his hometown in Nazareth. He said this, he was quoting the prophet Isaiah. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is preaching ransom. It doesn't come through in this passage, but Jesus knew what it would cost. It's not just poetry. He's not just going to announce freedom to the captives. He's saying, I'm going to pay to have you released. I am going to bring about freedom for the oppressed. So, that's the second, or the, the third and, and final image of, of what Jesus did on the cross. He paid a ransom to liberate us from the powers that had held us captive. But there's one more thing Jesus did. As part of that ransom, somehow he turned the tables on the powers. We get this from the book of Colossians. It says, when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made you alive together with him when he forgave us our trespasses, erasing the record. He basically traded his life for the bill that said, you're mine. Okay, He took that and nailed it to the cross, but he did more than that. See, we can never be held hostage a second time because he disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them. Now, instead of us being led in a, in a parade by our captors, Now it's them that he has made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. How did he do that? Paul says this, Through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. What Paul is saying here is that when Jesus died, that the powers, the devil, however you want to the powers, the principalities, the the forces of darkness, the spiritual forces of darkness in our world. They took Jesus thinking they got the better deal. Okay? 
But what happened is when Jesus rose, everybody who had died in him also rose with him. The, the, the idea here is that if we die with Christ, then when Christ rises, we also rise with Christ. So this power that, that, that used to oppress us, the power that used to hold us captive has been defeated. So he says, he says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the final image is this. Jesus died as a ransom to gain victory for us. Jesus died not just to pay off a debt once and then we'd end up being blackmailed a second and third and fourth time. Jesus gained victory because of the way he paid the ransom. So what do we do with these? Well, uh, we celebrate the fact that we have a God who loves us. We have a God who taught us something we didn't know. We didn't know that, that the powers of the world, the, the sword and the cross, have no power over the children of God. We celebrate that when we are in debt, when we have made a mess of our lives, when we owe more than we can pay, God paid for us. And we celebrate the fact that God not only paid, not only paid to bring us release from the captivity we were in, but God defeated the powers that had held us captive. What the doctrine of the cross teaches us is that our situation was serious and that God paid for it at great cost, but he did so in a way to assure us of his ultimate victory. When we look at the world, when we look at ourselves and we say, I'm still a mess, we look at the cross and remember that Jesus has triumphed over the powers that had held us captive. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.